0: Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined with an all-star group here today. Deirdre Bosa, she is the illustrious host of CNBC's Tech Check, uh, Rick Heitzman, who is the CEO, founder, and general partner of Firstmark Capital in New York City. And our friend, Jeff Richards, he's a managing partner at GGV Capital out on the West Coast. We're gonna have a little East Coast, West Coast narrative playing through this here. But guys, we wanted to get everyone together here. We wanted to kind of take some different points of view here about what has kind of gone on. We're really going to focus on probably what's going on right now as it relates to the fallout from this Silicon Valley bank. We're going to use kind of my kind of Wall Street approach to it and kind of someone who had a front row seat through the financial crisis. Obviously, Deirdre has been reporting on this extensively, not just on CNBC, but on local news, on the NBC nightly news. And Rick and Jeff, who I have talked to um, over the last few days extensively, whether it be by text or, or phone, just kind of the, the work that you guys have been doing at your own firms, with all your portfolio companies. It's been exhaustive. I'd love to get a little sense from each one of you, possibly, of kind of how this last week, as it relates to, you know, a whole host of, of things that you've been through throughout your careers as operators, as investors, obviously, Debo, you as a journalist, because, you know, all of us still are a little angsty about what That just happened with this global pandemic thing, you know, whether we're out of it, we've been kind of living through this. Debo, how does this last week kind of rate to you? And I'm just curious, you know, kind of what inning we are in of this little crisis here.
1: So not to age myself, but I came into the world of journalism right after the global financial crisis. And I always felt like I missed out on the biggest story potentially of my lifetime. A few days ago, when all of this started happening right in the field in which I play, I thought this must have been what it was like, Um, but I never imagined that I would have a front row view to a banking crisis being based in San Francisco in the Bay Area. So it was pretty incredible jumping on the phone with people on the network, with investors, with startup founders, and hearing just the anxiety and the uncertainty that was really just whirling through the markets and over the weekend was something that I haven't experienced as a journalist so far, especially in tech. It was the perfect meeting too of, tech and financial news.
2: And I think, you know, when I was, I was actually down on the floor of the stock exchange on Friday and the VIX hit the high, uh, since December 11. So, you know, it was right around that time still in the financial crisis where it seemed like there was more uncertainty to, you know, since that time, but maybe differently from the technology perspective, you know, that was not really an existential crisis. It was just, Kind of this macro thing that was going on in the financial crisis, but as this thing unfurled over the last several days, you know, this was a real existential crisis for our companies, and that there was a number of them that might weren't sure if they could
3: make payroll. Yeah, and I would just add that the timeline was so quick, and I suppose all these other events. When we go back to the GFC, you know, they felt quick as well. I was just looking up the dates. You know, if you think about Bear Stearns, the fire sale of Bear Stearns was in March of 08. The Lehman event wasn't until September. Part of what we've been trying to communicate with our companies is, hey, guys, the last three, four days we just went through was one of the craziest and most stressful. Certainly, I've been through in my career, and I've been in Silicon Valley since 1995. Everybody working 24-7 over the weekend, trying to come up with a backup plan, as Rick mentioned, for payroll. Nobody worried about their own personal money that they may have stored at SUB. I never heard that once. Everybody was focused on how we're going to make payroll for our people, for our teams, for our people that make $60,000, $70,000 a year. And really up until Sunday when the Fed announcement came out, everybody in peak stress mode of trying to figure that scenario out. And obviously we had payroll providers like ADP and Rippling who were right at the center of this as well and representing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of employees. So it was for me, uh, and I think for. Uh, pretty much all of our founders about as stressful as it can possibly get. And then I would just say, you know, what I have been incredibly impressed with over the last 48 hours is one, the way the government handled the response and the communication I thought was very effective and it did what it was supposed to do. It calmed the market. We did not have a run on regional banks on Monday. And, you know, we could all speculate what could have happened had they not done that. But I can tell you with pretty high level of certainty, as I know a lot of people who bank with uh, First Republic, as an example, they were planning to pull their capital from First Republic Bank. The government coming out and saying this provided a very significant backstop to that happening. And I think had the effect that they hoped it would on the market.
1: What was so amazing about this too, I just, it still kind of blows my mind is that this was a liquidity crisis. It wasn't a solvency crisis. So what Jeff is saying, no one was worried about getting their money back. It was a time crunch thing and cash burning startups that need to pay, make payroll or keep the lights on, stay operational. Those were the ones that were most worried. And I remember even my mom came up to me in the middle of it and she said, are we in the great depression? Isn't that what bank runs mean? And I thought, (laughs) kind of it is it was very different than what we saw in 0809
2: and and there were there was layers of risk i think that you know some people said i'm safe because i don't have my deposits at, at svb and then they said well i might be relying on debt from svb well i don't have my payroll at svb oh but i do use rippling whose payroll is powered by svb so people went from thinking oh there's nothing to see here to i'm not sure if i could pay my team in in 3 days How this unfurled and all the different unintended consequences were much bigger than anyone thought at first.
0: Going back to what Jeff just said, I mean, Bear Stearns happened nearly 15 years ago to the week, which is pretty astounding. And, you know, it was one of those situations where a lot of people kind of saw this. It was like a slow motion train wreck a little bit. And there was definitely a panic that weekend in the feds and, uh, you know, got the powers that be together. And they probably thought they stemmed what, what what could have been easily a crisis. So this is, again, this is March of 2008. You know, markets rallied. They were just kind of back on their merry way. And I look at the way that the stock market has been treating this i mean listen they were shooting first asking questions later still with the regionals jeff you make the point about first republic yeah depositors were backstopped i think these business models are going to be very impaired going forward i think the other thing the debo's point about liquidity versus some other sort of systemic issues i mean the businesses are going to look very different going forward, right? All of these banks. So if we are just going to take a page out of the playbook from the GFC, and again, no one wants to kind of revisit that, but if we've learned anything about this, that one-off events like this in the financial system are not particularly common, right? And so when you think of the huge beneficiaries that we've seen right now, the irony is that the too-big-to-fail banks are the ones that are going to be inundated. Let me tell you guys something, okay? If you are the brand Silicon Valley. and I have lots of friends there, and I used to think very highly of them. I don't really have an opinion. I'm not in it the way you guys are right now. Why the hell would you reward this franchise with some sort of continuation of your business, if you were not tied to them for the sorts of services that made them attractive to, let's say, half of the VC backed technology community. I, I just don't get it, right? It's just like, you know, Bear Stearns had to lose its name when it became part of JP Morgan because people didn't want to do business with Bear Stearns. They wanted to do business with JP Morgan. And JP Morgan was buying assets, they were buying a, a level of stability for in and around their ecosystem, and they were taking out a competitor. So I guess I guess my point is, is like, if you think we're out of the woods, because the NASDAQ rallied 2% today, and Fed Chair Powell is done raising interest rates, which a lot of people are putting this crisis on his feet, right, because of the pace in which they've raised interest rates over the last year, I think you got another thing coming. And that's my two cents. And I'm just curious, Debo, because you straddle this Silicon Valley and this Wall Street sort of universe. Are you getting a sense that people think we're kind of out of the woods because the Fed, the Treasury, the White House have taken extraordinary measures? I mean, trust me, back in March of 2008, I think they talk extraordinary –
1: Wall Street has a sense, and maybe it's not just Wall Street, a lot of people wanted to point fingers, say very bad risk management, right, the long duration treasuries, they knew that their deposit base was shrinking, they knew this well in advance, terrible risk management on the back end. But does no one go to Silicon Valley Bank again? No. I think that so much of the startup ecosystem relied. I've spoken to so many people who said they were the best to deal with. They hated dealing with the big banks because they wouldn't even give smaller businesses these accounts and a lot of the products and services. I mean, maybe Rick or Jeff were in a better position to say whether or not these financial products were too risky. But I mean, this is a financial system. They were offering them. It was the back end risk management that was not good, not necessarily the products, the services, the flexibility that they were providing to startups and founders that couldn't go anywhere else. And I would group Chinese companies on that as well. Global banks haven't wanted to work with Chinese startups for a long time. So they returned to SVB, which had operations here and in China.
2: That was the backbone of of their offering, right? For the last 40 years, they've said, you know, where traditional banks would turn their back on companies that were small, that were unprofitable, that were more optimists than they were cash flow machines. They were willing to invest in those relationships and nurture those relationships over time. And that's how they built their brand. And that was the brand that they continued to build and grow over 40 years. The issue now is that brand was worth a lot a week ago. And that brand, you know, if you talk to my friends who are public market analysts and financial services are involved in the financial system, They thought as recently as last Wednesday, we started talking about it. That's a great brand, has strong presence, has deep relationships in one of the most important sectors. People are going to pay a lot for that brand. You know, 36 hours later, they were saying the same thing Dan was just saying that, oh, my God, you know the silicon valley bridge bank is probably not the best brand and do you have to rebrand this to lines bank and you know restart it with the same ethos around customer service to have those customers return
3: I look at the cycle of that great financial crisis and the timeline of call it that five or six months between Bear Stearns and Lehman. I personally think, this is my own personal view, this is not Silicon Valley's view, we have a whole host of things that are going to break because rates have gone up so fast. What this showed us was that the risk management departments of the 16th largest bank in the country wasn't equipped to handle that. I suspect there are other banks that have the same problem. In fact, if you look at the data and the charts that have been shared on Twitter and elsewhere, it would tell you that. And so I think we're in an early innings of a, bunch of a bunch of issues in our economy that we're going to learn a lot about. And I think it's one of the reasons why the government moved so quickly, right? They said, gosh, we have a major issue. We can't have this impact other regional banks or our entire banking system, as you point out, beyond the too big to fail banks. And so I, I will tell you that we have cautioned our startups, hey guys good news, you're going to be able to make payroll this week. We need a more sophisticated treasury management strategy for the company. And you also should prepare for some aftershocks in the startup financing market. It's going to be harder to get loans. It's going to be harder to do banking. It's going to be harder. Your customers are going to have a harder time doing banking and getting loans. And a lot of the grease that makes things go in the startup ecosystem just dried up.
1: So Jeff, where are you telling your startups to put money then? the bigger banks well, the best
3: capitalized ones well many of them many of them already had accounts at j p morgan city bank of america wells fargo you know they were using silicon valley bank for a portion of their money you know if you look at our broad portfolio we were able to very quickly on saturday figure out which ones had single threaded exposure to silicon valley bank and it was a small number it was around around 10 out of you know 100 call it us portfolio companies so that doesn't mean now r- roughly half or more of our portfolio banks with silicon valley bank but they weren't single-threaded to Silicon Valley Bank. And to Rick's point, there are a lot of companies that didn't think they had exposure, but they did because they used Rippling or they used Stripe or they used some other provider that was tied into to, to, um, to Silicon Valley Bank. So I think you'll see one of the outputs of this will be a much more sophisticated treasury management policy across Silicon Valley. Venture firms, private equity firms, startups. You know, Traditionally, somebody was joking to me this weekend, the treasury management policy for startups was give your money to Silicon Valley Bank. What you're going to see now is people at Series A say, here's $10 million. Here's how we would recommend you run Treasury, even as a $10 million company. Because part of the challenge we have, Deirdre, as you know, most companies we back at Series A and B don't even have somebody running finance. They don't even have financials. We're investing in a founder and a product team and an engineering team and a dog. You know, I think you're going to see more financial sophistication, more focus on treasury management, more focus on risk management, which will be better for companies in the long run. But it will slow down the gears of sort of, you know, the old Mark Zuckerberg thing. What is it? Move move fast and break things. People are into a mode of, hey, let's move slow, get things right and take the time to build a great company. But I think it's also going to put, you know, this is going to put some sand in the gears of financing and fund flows and capital flows. And, you know, I had a conversation with a founder at 930 last night who's trying to raise capital for a, a really interesting but very complex Series A company. And I just told him, hey, you need to be prepared. It's going to take a while to raise your Series A. You have a complex business that's tied into the financial system. It's going to be hard for people to understand. They're trying to get a sense of their own treasury management. And now you're asking them to trust you with yours it's gonna put some sand in the gears of the startup ecosystem.
2: Our portfolio probably looks like Jeff, probably looks like a lot of of peoples that only you know single-digit percentages were really affected in terms of either existential risk or, or missing payroll or needing something to do this week, but majority of them were affected in some way. When I first started around the same time as Jeff, it was actually in the term sheet that you deposit the financing in Silicon Valley Bank. That was a contractual thing because we didn't want you depositing in some bank we never heard of or in a, maybe a money center bank where we couldn't have a relationship, and the relationship that we had with Silicon Valley Bank and the terms that we knew existed made it the, the best place to put that capital. And I think, you know, in term sheets, probably starting tomorrow, you know, you're going to deposit this thing in, you know, the $10 million I give you for the series A in compliance with the first mark risk credit and treasury methodology that, you know, we're, we're putting together. We're probably going to publish it. I think we're going to open source it in the next day or so which includes you know having money center bank accounts having multiple bank accounts understanding where your payroll is having short-term liquidity across a couple banks all the normal things that no one thought about a week ago, but I think will be best practices next week.
1: You know, I, I have a question, actually, for the group is something I was thinking about when this all hit and the speed at which it sort of spread, because one of the main differences between 0809 and now is that we have Twitter and you have some people typing in all caps and stirring up quite a bit of panic. So. I wonder, too, if there's sort of an education in this that's going to change almost the fabric of tech. Jeff, you were saying that early stage companies that are raising their seed round or Series A, Series B, they don't really even know their finances. Do you think that we're going to start to see more CFAs work for tech companies, more robust financial knowledge at the earlier levels? And then is that going to change The mix at banks. I mean, if you got a $10 million check and you don't have to use it right away, do you think that these companies are going to deposit it into a bank account or are they going to buy short term treasuries because they know in this interest rate environment that they can earn some off of that?
3: Well, until this weekend, not a lot of people spent a lot of time worried about the $250,000 limit, uh, FDIC limit. You know, I talked to a friend who runs a restaurant this weekend who breaks with Silicon Valley Bank. I talked to a friend who runs a hotel that banks with Silicon Valley Bank they have a lot of money sitting in cash. Why? Because they run payroll, they pay their vendors. They're not running a treasury management trying to arbitrage, you know, T-bills. But should they? With rates where they are now? (laughs) Well, I I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves as a country is, how many small businesses have that expertise or even understand the difference between cash, a money market, and a T-bill? Most don't. And so if we're going to keep that Limit at 250K, we need to really figure something out because the majority of small business owners in America do not understand how to manage that, how to allocate risk, how to, you know, and and again, you're talking about a lot of folks in our portfolio. Uh, Rick was just mentioning this. Of the 10 companies that I mentioned, all of them run a payroll larger than $250,000 on the 15th. We're talking 600 700 up to a million what do we tell them keep 250k at 100 banks and then wire it all in during the week when you're going to run payroll like that's not a best practice so again there's some things that have to get sorted out all of the firms like ours are going to be rolling out you know treasury management best practices i'm on a slack channel we have with a thousand startup folks that people are asking questions and exchanging ideas and we're giving them tools and templates and whatnot so I think people will get better and more sophisticated around this. But let's remember, the problem here was not poor financial management by startups. The problem was the 16th largest bank in the country did not do a good job of treasury management on its end, on risk management. This is not this is not a startup problem. I, don't, I think there was a there was a narrative over the weekend. Oh, this is a problem with startups. Startups are fine, right? There's less capital coming in this year than there was two years ago. But 21 was an aberration. We're not going to see 21 again, hopefully, for another decade the startup ecosystem is healthy people are well capitalized they have more burn they have more runway than they did in 08, 09. most companies had 12 months back then now they've got two or three years the startup ecosystem is actually doing quite well it just had a knock on effect of lower capital coming into the system with with uh, silicon valley bank and then obviously their their capital markets bet that they made that didn't that turn out to, didn't turn out to be a good one.
0: What is it? And I think that's a great point. I mean, some of the valuation compression we saw last year had to do with the fact that the cost of capital was a lot more, right? And and so it, it, you know all of the sorts of metrics that companies had been solving for in a zero interest rate environment and kind of the way that you guys would invest capital, it was really dictated by that monetary policy regime for all intents and purposes. And when you go back and you look at venture, I know Jeff and Rick, you guys have all the data. I mean, when you think about the size of the venture back tech community in 08, 09 versus now, it's like nothing, right? Like, So it, it, it's really interesting to me when you talk about runways. I wonder, and and we got to hit Tom Levero's mass extinction event tweet from January 31st because he said it was coming around the corner here, people. I I guess we got to get Tom on to talk about that. We we kind of uh, disaster averted for right now, but I wonder if the sort of panic that was felt by so many people in and around this ecosystem, if it causes a sort of mulligan, if you will, for people to say, okay, we're going to cut costs here, we're going to start looking at how we do things a bit differently, because I never want to be in a situation, Rick, I'm just curious, is that something that might permeate a little bit? Because, you know, the hubris that existed in the mid 2000s, in the lead up in the financial crisis among the hedge fund community, and that sort of thing, things changed really quickly in the investment banking sector and the buy side. And, And, you know, I wonder if this was a sort of little bit of a chin music, if you will, for those um, and saying, you know what, I, I better uh, maybe kind of mind my P's and Q's a little bit here.
2: It was definitely chin music. You know, as we talked to folks, you could hear everybody almost exhaling at a little after six o'clock on Sunday night where, you know, there was not, you know, the meteor missed the planet. And uh, or maybe we, we were able to push the planet away a little bit. What the, the next thing was, was, hey, this was a, a show that the world might be riskier than what you think. And the world's not going to bounce back to 2020 or 2021 in the second or third quarter that, you know, th- there is more risk in this system than what we think. We might only be halfway through, maybe not even halfway through this downturn, And although we might have taken some of the valuation punishment in the public markets, there's still tremendous financing risk to Tom's tweet. There's still tremendous risk out there. And I think we're probably going to see more funders leaving the venture startup ecosystem that's now perceived as a lot riskier than coming in. So therefore, follow-on financings are going to be harder. And if you're a CEO, you need to extend that. To your point, Dan, you need to extend that runway, cut costs, and figure out another way that you're going to get from here to there without access to the external financing market.
3: By the way, I'd retweeted Tom's tweet. I thought it was excellent. You should share it with your with your with your audience. I think it's spot on. If you combine that with the fact that every major public technology software company lowered its forecasts over the last 90 days, Mark Zuckerberg just laid off another 10,000 people. Like there are a bunch of signals in the market that are telling the animals in the jungle that the weather is changing. Now, that weather changed a year ago, but a lot of the startup ecosystem didn't feel it in the first half of last year. There was still so much money coming into the system after 2021. We started to see people digest that in the second half. I think it is abundantly clear today. And obviously, freezing up their liquidity at the end of last week was, was a strong signal as well. So like I said earlier, it's going to put sand in the gears. The well-run companies have now have, as you mentioned, Dan, have a reason to be even more well-run, right? The market has told them capital efficiency, risk off. Having said that, I think we all know if the Fed pauses or even lowers rates in the back half of this year, you're going to see risk back on. And so we're just trying to tell companies, Hey, be smart about your runway. Be smart about the way you run your company. Take this as an opportunity to have a more sophisticated treasury management policy. But it doesn't change the fact that these companies are going after gigantic markets. They're creating innovative products. They got a ton of demand in the market. You still have to run a great business, but there will be to t- back to Tom's tweet. I mean, what he sort of implied and another investor, Eli Gill, had a great tweet that I shared. It was sort of Darwinism. There are going to be legendary companies that come out of this cycle, just like Stripe and Square and Facebook and others came out of the great financial crisis. They're going to be legendary companies come out of the cycle. The Darwinian process is painful. It's really painful.
1: I wonder what the Darwinian process is for investors. Remember the whole idea of the tourist investor, the big hedge fund that was searching for yield or the private equity firm that was going into tech and they kind of stuck around for the last decade, right? As tech went higher and higher. So I wonder what you guys think is going to happen? Is there going to be a flushing out of some of those investors? Does SoftBank go away or do they keep at tech investing? I think there was one note last week that said this pushes forward their day of reckoning. Tiger Global that was so active and you know played a huge part in these valuations becoming bigger and bigger for you guys and people and other investors that are Silicon Valley native, let's say. They've worked in tech their whole lives and maybe better at valuing those companies or not. I don't know. Does the field become more even all of a sudden for you guys? And does it make it easier for you to look for the next disruptive companies without their valuations being bid up and up and up?
2: Well, even as you look at 2022 over 2021, all the growth investors, I think the top 10 growth investors were 100% different from 2021 to 2022. So you're seeing a turnover in who's providing that growth capital. You're seeing hedge funds, private equity funds, even family offices that were willing to write very large checks that were not players in tech 5 years earlier and were playing the momentum of a 12-year bull market all leaving the market. So the tourists have kind of left the building probably 6 to 9 months ago. Now the market's readjusting. So many of the, many of those companies especially at the growth stage who raised a couple of years of capital in 2020 or 2021 haven't had that day of reckoning yet where they have to go back and look at themselves in the mirror and say, "Hey, we need another financing or we need to go out and access the market in some way which calls their valuation their burn their business metrics into question and i think you know the way that some people have cut the numbers it's going to probably be in the second half of this year assuming some normalized burn that those growth companies are going to be coming back to market and they're going to have to kind of face the music for an evaluation perspective and a business model perspective
3: to rick's point some of that already happened you know we saw some some folks who have gone back to being a hedge fund or or whatever you know, a lot of family offices and other folks that had come into the VC market, you know, partially because they're they have sophisticated asset allocators inside of their organizations, and they say, "Gosh, if I can get five five percent in a two year T bill, why am I taking risk in the venture capital market?"
1: There, there's a lot more out there, but I but my question though, I wonder though, are these portfolios have they marked down their portfolios in line with what's happened in the public companies, which Jeff you were just talking about? Has that happened yet? And maybe even I would love for you to share. How the different ways of marking your portfolio? Are you forced to do it when only when you have a fundraising round, or do you mark to market?
2: That's probably more of an art than a science, but I think a lot of people were coming to the reckoning at the end of the year, where their their auditors are forcing them to you know look in the mirror. And then I know up until maybe the third quarter of last year, private tech funds we're only down half as much as the public tech funds of year-to-date Q3, which obviously we know is not true, right? They, you know, Theoretically, bigger companies, probably that have more cash, have a more liquid security, probably should be down less than than their private counterparts. So what you've seen is a very slow pacing of VCs being able to mark down that portfolio. And because it doesn't trade on a day-to-day basis, you know, you're not forced to mark that down and have that financing, but I think whether it's it's this event, I know some even auditors or were were thinking it might take longer to get the audit done for 2022 because they were mid process when some of these banking crises uh, issues happened. But you know, you're going to see you know more dramatic markdowns in Q4. You know, also because you're you're also seeing the effect of crypto and FTX in Q4. So you're going to see um, more dramatic markdowns and therefore more people leaving the market. So new funds who are not able to raise money and tourists who might not be long-term players in the market. But obviously the the existing funds, the, you know, the GGVs of the world are, and us are going to you know,
3: continue to persist and invest in the best entrepreneurs. Every firm does it differently. Most LPs have some consistency in the way that they do things, and they will proactively mark down their assessment of portfolios in some cases on their own because they might see a single company that's in five or six, different portfolios that they're an investor in. We proactively tried to adjust some of our valuations last year. The only thing I would add there, though, is you can't proactively sort of arbitrarily write up your companies and you can't proactively and arbitrarily write them down either. right? When I'm when I'm an investor in a, in a great software company that's valued at $100 million, if the public comp goes up 10x, I can't just write it up in value in 10x. What we do internally is we use the financial data that we get with the company, obviously the, the financials of the business we use relevant public comps where we can and then we actually have an internal grading system that we apply that our finance team runs independently of the partner that says how is this company performing versus expectations and we try to come up with a rational valuation that then is blessed by our auditors but i think it's an important distinction to make because when things were good people couldn't just arbitrarily write up their valuations either they can't just arbitrarily write them down all of a sudden either the, the auditors would have a very hard time with that so there's a lot of work that's gone into this. I personally believe that most firms want to create a fair representation of the value of their companies is one data point. The second thing I would add is, you know, if you look at our firm, 75% of what we do is series A and series B. You're talking about companies that are still in the early days, first five years of their life cycle. Maybe a $5 million company shouldn't be valued at $100 million ARR, but it's not as crazy as a $50 million company being valued at $10 billion. And so the adjustment on those series A and B companies, if you were to make any proactively, would be very slight. It's really the companies that you're asking about, I think, are the 1200 that are valued at over a billion dollars, the, the quote unquote unicorns. And that's probably to Rick's point where you're going to see the most fluctuation over the next 12 months as those companies raise additional capital, get remarked, or go public. You know, Hopefully, knock on wood, we will see an IPO market in the back half of this year, and hopefully a healthy IPO market in 2024.
2: Cross River Bank, member FDIC.
0: So I don't really want to get in this kind of um, bailout, not a bailout debate. I, I don't think it's particularly useful. And I think we all kind of articulated, you know, over the course of this first half an hour, why we thought necessary for the powers that be that did what they did to kind of at least quell what would have clearly been just a, a financial meltdown this week. And, and maybe they just kicked the can down the road. I mean, this is one of the biggest criticisms, right? You hear that term moral hazard all the time. And, and you know, um, when, you, when you think about it, Ken Griffin was interviewed this week in the F.T. And he is obviously the founder of Citadel, it's a sixty-plus billion-dollar hedge fund. Um, you know, and and the title of the article was "U.S. Capitalism is breaking down before our eyes." And I guess this is a topic that I think is really important. It does speak to the fact that whether bailouts, whether you um, agree with them or not um, in some way, shape or form, I mean, it really is obviously socializing losses and, and we do a great job of capitalizing gains. And so it's just kind of interesting because I remember during COVID, I remember some very prominent investors, Silicon Valley Types saying, yeah, you know, the airline should go out of business. They run their businesses really poorly. Every time there's a sort of crisis, you know what I mean? They should go out of business. And I'm just curious, like, you guys are venture capitalists, and I'm just curious how you think of how capitalism is doing right now. Because in my lifetime, at least in the last 25 years since I entered the hedge fund business, there's been no shortage of stopgaps, whether it was long term capital, whether it was, you know, post um, the dot com implosion, whether it was a financial crisis. You guys can't see it, Jeff have a snicker in here. This is me putting my little Fast Money hat on um, a little bit. But it, it doesn't seem to be doing particularly great for the masses. I get the argument, right? bail out this bank or at least stop, you know what I mean, the sort of crisis that would happen throughout the financial system if we let it go under. But these are people, and we've all said this, okay, in this last half an hour here, these are people that were not taking the risk. They were not getting second mortgages on homes they couldn't afford. Very different this time. I get that. But how's capitalism doing here, guys? It's a
3: big question.
2: <laughs> I, I just uh, you couldn't see, but I took one step back to let Jeff take this one. Uh, no, the, uh, I, I think what you're seeing is, you know, this is a down cycle and everybody, you know, in, in the down cycle, everyone tends to take a step back. In the up cycle, everyone thinks they're a genius. And what you've seen is that, you know, some systems break. And obviously, there's once in a lifetime change in that interest rates were at an all-time low of zero. They increased the fastest they have in 30 years, and they're creating unintended consequences. And I agree, this, you know, this wasn't a capitalism failure per se. This was a credit and risk failure by a bank that they were unable to match their assets, their duration, and their interest rates by deposits and assets. So, you know, the there was a run on the bank and therefore a lack of deposits, but it wasn't caused by any of these employees. And I think the government's job is in extraordinary circumstances to act like a shock absorber and be able to ring fence problem areas so it doesn't create a contagion. In this case, there was a problem around a bank that probably had wider tentacles than anyone would have guessed. And they had to stop that contagion so people could, you know, everybody along those lines could get paid payroll can make their you know pay their bills we had a company that had a big tax bill coming tomorrow that they weren't going to be able to pay their taxes because it was a big tax bill and it was in, and they had in a working account in silicon valley bank so there was a lot of people and whether it's jeff's friend who runs a hotel my friend who runs a little league or my friend who was trying to pay their tax bill that, you know, business would generally have ground to a halt for some of these folks. And it wouldn't have been good for anyone.
0: You just said unintended consequences, Rick. And and so how about this? The Fed's backstopping all depositors in all U.S. banks. So does that mean if I'm some foreign company or large individual, I'm just going to go park as much money as I can across every US bank. Okay. And, and what does that do to our banking system? What I'm saying is we might be creating a huge, huge potential bubble in the too big to fail banks.
2: Any of these short term things, which are broad based that no one thinks about, creates huge unintended consequences. So if you said, Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise the limit from 250 grand to infinity obviously people are gonna and i'm gonna make sure that the five money center banks can't fail obviously people are going to put their money there and it's not going to work or if you say i'm going to backstop every single regional bank that's not going to work i think what you're going to say is that no one reviewed 250 grand which is to jeff's point was completely inappropriate maximum for for most small and medium-sized businesses they're going to have to do that and you're probably going to have to charge more for fdic insurance
0: Further regulation, Rick, uh, OK, these are going to be passed through to consumers, to businesses. I, I guess I just wonder, Jeff, a little bit uh, uh, about, you know, going back to the 2008 timeline. And again, I you know, I, I guess, you know, a lot of people are going to say, oh, it's very different this time. But I, I wonder, you know, what lies beneath some of these money center banks? Like, you know, we, we talk about JP Morgan is this, you know, the best of breed, this and that. You know, Citibank, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, these are not great institutions for all intents and purposes the way that they've managed their businesses over the last 25 years. Given the financial
2: crisis, they had to have a lot re- le- re- less risky balance sheet than the regional banks. If you remember, they the, the bigger you were, and therefore, the bigger bail you got, therefore, the more restrictions you were put on. So there was kind of this perverse incentive for the regionals to be more risky. And if you looked at you know some of the charts around Silicon Valley Bank and the regionals, the risk that they were taking was much more than was regulatory allowed by a city or a JPM. And therefore, that contributed to this issue. But what I think you're going to see is, Obviously, those costs are going to be borne by the depositors, but you know, we've already seen kind of synthetic products where you're going to get paid 150 basis points less on your cash, but we're going to guarantee it to $150 million. And I'm sure Jeff has seen three banks have come out with this so far. And I think you're just going to get less interest on your money because those banks are going to have to take less risky Bets and they're gonna to have to have a bigger equity cushion. And I think that's probably a better solution to this than you know, having a, a major bank
3: blow up over 15 years. You know, we invest in a lot of companies that provide technology to small businesses, literally hundreds of thousands of small businesses. And in my personal view, 55% of America works for a small business. It's 42% of US GDP. One of the primary questions we need to ask ourselves is, what can we do to help those businesses to succeed? concentrating power in the four largest banks does not help small business, right? I could be wrong, but I feel like I read about a three and a half billion dollar fine for Wells Fargo pretty much every year. (laughs) So I think the regional banking system is incredibly important to our economy and to our country. It's why the government moved so aggressively on Sunday to do what they did. And, you know, Dan, back to your question, is capitalism working? Let's also not forget What did we pump in, $7 trillion of stimulus in 20 and 21 to deal with COVID? So we're still in like the aftershock of an unprecedented amount of money that flowed into our system. Unemployment, we still don't quite understand what's happening with the American labor force. Immigration's at an all-time low. Unemployment's at an all-time low. Wages went up, which looked great. But that drove, you know, partially is what drove inflation. And so we've got all these moving parts that I think are pretty hard to figure out. And God, wouldn't it be nice if we could all just take a deep breath for like six months and just have a quote unquote, normal economy? I certainly would love that after the the events of the last weekend. You wrap in COVID, rising interest rates, this issue with Silicon Valley Bank, we've had a lot of shocks to the system in the last three, four years. I don't know, part of me says, damn, we've done a pretty good job of dealing with this stuff. Like. Pretty resilient, not, you know, the Russia Ukraine issue. Yeah, well, that's my point, Jared. That's what concerns me. Knock on wood, so far, so good. Where are we going to have the big snafus?
0: But when you say we've dealt with it so well, I mean, we threw $5 trillion at COVID, right? And then so, I mean, like, again, and what did we just do? How many hundreds and billions? This goes back to my question. How's capitalism working, guys? You know, I mean, like, that's kind of my point. And I think when Ken Griffin's point in this interview in the FT is that sooner or later, Somebody is going to have to do the hard work here. And the irony is that back in 2018, when Fed Chair Powell started at his job, he started normalizing interest rates, right? And what happened? We had a little bit of a global growth scare in Q4 of that year. The stock market went down 20% in a straight line. And they pivoted. And that was it. And that moment when they blinked, OK, so then we got to this point where, OK, you know, the Fed put is in full effect here. They want to keep risk asset prices bid up. And so, I mean, I, I guess my point is, and, and, and I know that you guys listen to Guy and Deirdre is probably sick of it and, and myself here. And we rail about uh, against some of this. But sooner or later, we're going to be kind of down for the count, because when I go back and I look at the history of this, when you talk about resilient and talk about the economy i mean we had a 2% on average gdp from the financial crisis up until the pandemic and we also had inflation that was just below 2% the fed was kind of managing all of that they had managed out recessions right out of the normal course of the business cycles they did it in 2020 with covid they're kind of doing it right now for all intensive purposes they had been so i guess my point is is like you guys can keep investing in all these companies they're going to make all these great like you know whiz bang sort of things here and there or whatever. But sooner or later, you know, we may find ourselves in a good old fashioned depression that the Fed is going to be like they're going to be so turned into a pretzel. Just think about what's happened in monetary policy and just so, D, talk to me here. Help me out.
1: I mean, it's kind of incredible to me that at this moment, the equity market is pricing in a pivot or a pause, you know, a higher probability of that. And I, I don't know. I'm just. Uh, could we be in for another Jackson Hole, right? When Powell just shakes the earth below everyone once again? So Dan, I, I understand what you're saying.
0: If the Fed does pivot, and we've been talking about this on on the tape and on an OK Computer for like a year and a half since the Fed actually did their pivot towards you know inflation's not transitory. What was going to be the thing? What was going to be the thing that breaks that causes the Fed to kind of not battle inflation the way that they said they were going to do? No one had this on their bingo card. I mean, a few friends of mine did. Jim Chanos did, Porter and Vinny. So here's the question, okay? So what happens to inflation now? If they actually have to pivot and lower interest rates, right, and flood the zone, this is what they do when it comes to crises here. Are we going to find ourselves in a really nasty stagflationary sort of a cycle? And none of us on this pod right now really knows what that means for risk assets, especially how financialized that they have become and how interwoven we have become. And then Another theme in our podcast over the last year is this single point of failure, right? And so all eyes are going back to the Federal Reserve right now. And you could point to some other areas, you know what I mean, where that's happened too. Dan, you
1: asked, How is capitalism going? Maybe this is what we can end on too. How is communication going? Um, there's been what's going on in Silicon Valley over the last few years, it's become more inward looking. And can I say a little bit more echo chamber-ish? And so how do you guys think that everything was communicated over the last few days? Do you think that the style of communication changes? So it's not Silicon Valley versus mainstream media. Did that problem get deeper? If it is a problem, maybe it's not. Did that get deeper, that issue, over the last few days? How do you think Silicon Valley comes out of this to the average American that now is looking at this as a bailout?
2: Well, I think the most interesting thing is most people believe this bailout would be easier if the bank had any other name. So, you know, this definitely pits the middle of the country versus the coasts. It definitely pits non-tech versus tech people. And it really has become a lightning rod. And, uh, you know, you hope that similar to other times where the governments had to step in. They've stepped in and, you know, everybody will wind up better off for it. But I think it's it's going to be up in the air. And I think how much of a bailout matters, right? Is this, And how much contagion spreads? Is this going to hit, you know, obviously hit signature? Is it going to hit First Republic? Is it going to hit some super regional banks? And, and where that stops will depend on where the Fed stops. In general, we all feel lucky in, in compared to what this could have been. In general, you know, we're all moving forward. And hopefully this is going to be a rocky path for the rest of 23, but, you know, we're hopefully preparing ourselves, our partners
3: and our companies for that path forward. Look, there certainly is an awareness in the tech community that we need to do a better job of communicating and engaging in the communities where we operate, right? We have companies in Atlanta and Utah and Texas and Florida and New Jersey and Massachusetts and all of them are impacted by this. And yet all of the narrative was quote unquote Silicon Valley. And I think that, you know, that narrative post COVID where so many founders have chosen to move to other parts of the country and start businesses and you're seeing capital flow into these other markets wasn't really part of the narrative. And so, yeah, I think there's a, whatever it is, V2, V3 that is, Hey, Silicon Valley is not, it's not about a a geography or a zip code. It's about tech and innovation in our country. And thankfully, there were a lot of folks behind the scenes, from what I understand, working with folks in D.C. to help them understand that this was about small business. It's about our innovation economy. How interesting it is that this happened at the same time. We're trying to build our own capabilities to make chips. Right. We're understanding that solar and energy and clean energy and electric vehicles and all these things that have been invented and created by technology founders but in many cases aren't even in quote-unquote Silicon Valley anymore, are really important to our country. And I think that message clearly got through to D.C. that this was not about San Jose, California, you know, where Mountain View, Apple, Google, Facebook. This is about small businesses and our innovation economy. So I'm glad that came through. But clearly, a whole new playbook and script needs to be written about how America feels like they're a bigger part of that.
0: Yeah. But Jeff, the irony there is that we know it and Washington knows it. All of those new technologies have been subsidized for years by Washington. When you think of the IRA and the Chips Act, and you think of everything that's gone in the EV space and sustainable energy. And, and I guess this just kind of brings me, and I'll leave it here on this note. There was an op-ed in the FT the other day that said the Silicon Valley bank shows there are no libertarians and financial foxholes. To Debo's point, is that about communication and about the messaging that had been coming out from the likes of Elon Musk and some of his dogs that he's got out there on Twitter and, and doing his dirty work and stuff like that. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting in the way that, that there was this huge pushback from a big part of the community. But as soon as they were in trouble, then this is the narrative, okay, they were like, give me. You know what I mean like that sort of thing so um I, you know again I'll just say this and I'm play I'm taking a page out of my financial crisis playbook because I know none other here but strap on people because this is thing is not over right here just not and so I think the advice that you kind of said you were giving to your portfolio companies you know what I mean to be prudent now this was a shot across the bow here the lessons learned right now no matter what economy we're in they're gonna be better off for it you know what I mean and so I guess we could kind of stay out of culture war battles as it relates to all that sort of stuff and kind of hope for the best here but all right listen i really appreciate you guys coming on that is deirdre brosso cnbc's tech check reporter rick Heitzman of first mark capital and jeff richards of ggv we really appreciate you guys being here